Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez, and today I'm thrilled to present our next guest. Here with us is Susanna Stanford, a patient who experienced intraoperative pain. She took that experience, and in the most selfless way, she sought help, not for herself, but to advocate for a change, a change in how we communicate with our patients and test our neuraxial, and to encourage us to be more empathic with those experiencing or who have suffered intraoperative pain. In 2016, she published a compelling article titled Failure of Communication, a Patient Story. Most recently, she co-authored the Obstetric Anesthetist Association Guidelines for the Testing of Neuraxial Blocks and Management of Block Failure, published in the journal Anesthesia. Today, she tells us her story and the knowledge she has acquired since that incident. Welcome to our podcast. Antonio, thank you for inviting me. It's a great honor. You've become a, a great advocate for patients that have, you know, you know, have experienced pain. So, so why did you get so involved in these? What is your motivation be, behind participating in research, participating in editorials, helping with guidelines, which is amazing, I think. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't set out to, um, to do all of this. I, I certainly didn't expect it. But I, I realized the same thing was happening to other women. And I became really concerned about what would happen to someone who was more vulnerable than I had been. So, you know, girls who are too young, women who don't share a first language with, with a clinical team, um, who'd experienced rape or abuse. You know, there are so many people for whom it could be worse. And if it had almost broken me, well, what for them? But it, it's also really important to say that I always believed that harm had not been intended in my case. And I know that the vast majority of clinicians really care about providing good, safe care. So learning from my case is simply an opportunity to try to help everyone involved. And it's, it's not a niche issue. Litigation analysis shows that pain during cesarean section under neuraxial anesthesia is the most common successful medical legal claim against obstetric anesthesiologists. And the severity of reported harm after awareness under regional anesthesia is equivalent to the harm reported after awareness under general anesthesia. It can be very distressing and traumatic for patients. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can definitely see that it, it it is something that we definitely should strive to do better to improve our uh, intraoperative pain. And that's why there is so much research. And I think it's it's great. So, you know, we're definitely going to be talking about intraoperative pain, but I guess it will be only fair that we define what is pain. So what is pain? How would define pain? Well, the International Association for the Study of Pain define it as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage as described in terms of such damage. Yeah, I think it's important to um, emphasize that it's not only sensory, but also emotional. Um, and with that, tell us about that day. You know, the first thing in the morning, you're excited, you're having a C-section, you're going to meet your baby, then you meet your anesthesiologist. I'm wondering where the risk and benefits of neuraxial or alternatives to neuraxial anesthesia offered 
Right. So I, I had a preoperative assessment the week before my surgery. Um, and that wasn't with the anesthesiologist that I would have on the day, but with a different, more junior doctor. And the assumption was that I was going to be having a regional because um, that was just what was normal, right? Um, but I signed a consent for general anesthesia because it was explained to me that that would be a necessity if I started bleeding too much and they needed to do a hysterectomy. Now, I don't actually remember that much being said about potential for block failure, but it's important to say that actually I've not been expecting to give consent for an emergency hysterectomy. So I think I was probably quite sidelined by that. And I, I can imagine not taking in that much afterwards. We only met the anesthesiologist for my care on the day. Um, he came to see us first thing that morning and it seemed that he was very task focused. So it was like he was ticking everything off on a list. And for one thing, I, I think we didn't feel that we established a rapport with him. Um, but, but also, if general anesthesia was mentioned, it was so much in passing and so much in relation to the potential for hemorrhage that the need or potential need of a general anesthesia as an option to regional because the, of a block failure, that never really registered or didn't cross my mind. And to be honest, you know, I thought uh, the regional would work because I'd had an epidural after 24 hours labor with my first son. And frankly, it had been great. Subsequently, I would say that on the basis of my experience, I think general should be presented as an alternative and that it shouldn't be presented as the last resort, which you are keen to avoid. Because if things do become stressful later, you don't want patients thinking that it's going to be the scary option. And in your guidelines, you actually recommend that the use of general anesthesia be presented to the patient as an actual option and not as a last resource, as you mentioned, because then as a patient, I can see like if you've been offered this option only as a last resource and you end up needing general anesthesia in the patient's mind, probably it's this little voice saying, "Uh oh, we're at the last resource here. Something must not be right. Um, with, you know, so I think it's genius that in your guidelines, you actually present that general anesthesia should be presented to our patients uh, as an option. So you go to the operating room, the anesthesiologist, um, you know, performs the spinal in injection. Now you are at the point that you're laying in the table, they're going to start doing the testing. So what was your experience as a patient during the testing? So the, the anesthesiologist was really confident as he put in the block. And I remember him saying, that's it, it's exactly the right place. And as obviously I was then laid down, but as it became clear that the anesthetic had worked on my motor nerves, but the effect was patchy with my sensory nerves. And when asked whether I could feel the cold spray on my skin, I said that I could. And the response was, well, you may be able to feel the sensation of fluid on your skin, but can you feel it as cold? And I couldn't tell. So I was struggling to distinguish the difference between the sensation of fluid and cold. Now, the anesthesiologist waited and then he repeated the test with the same question, which was a little bit convoluted. And this happened several times over what felt like 10 minutes. Now, of course, I now know that blocks can take a while to spread. And the anesthesiologist was waiting for that. 
but actually it wasn't really spreading uh, or, or not noticeably. And eventually I thought, well, he seems completely confident. So despite real reservations, because I was not sure, I decided that the slight difference in sensation that I could feel, that that must be sufficient. And, and I gave the go ahead. I knew I had given the wrong answer when I felt the first incision. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about that experience upon the first incision, but I want to take some time here in the, spend some time here in the testing because it's really important and your guidelines, um, which we will keep talking and referring to them uh, throughout the, the podcast are extremely important. Now you mentioned that what felt like for 10 minutes, the, the anesthesiologist kept asking the same question. Do you think that, you know, asking the question the same way and the consistency influence your decision to give that go ahead? Yes, I, I think so. The question itself could have been clearer, but maybe if the block had been good, it would have been okay. But it wasn't a good block. And I kept being asked the same question. And I felt like I was giving the wrong answer. Now, I did hold my own for quite a long time, but I felt under huge pressure to, to give the go ahead. You know, there was a room full of people waiting. I was at, aware of the expectation that the block should be working. I'm lying on my back, looking up into the face of someone who is convinced that the block would be working. He's the expert, the person with authority. And that's a really difficult situation in which to go against authority. I often comment to clinicians that they need to appreciate that patients experience the hierarchy that is inherent in an operating theater. And this really can't be overstated. It is an extraordinary situation, which is outside of people's normal experience. Um, it's the only environment in which any of us would possibly allow masked strangers to come at us with knives. So patients have to place an extraordinary degree of trust in clinicians. But this means two things. It makes it hard to speak up and raise concerns, but it also makes patients prone to suggestion. They can be led, even if that means going against their own better judgment. There's lots of evidence showing that people are more vulnerable to suggestion if they're in distress or in pain. And altogether, this means that clinicians need to be really careful to ask neutral questions to avoid what in a legal context would be called leading the witness. Yeah, I can definitely see how uh, that plays a role. And, and as physicians, again, this is, you know, using your story. It's another cautionary tale about how we should actually start improving the way we talk to our patients and start studying the best ways to communicate with our patients. So, uh, you know, you've done your research, you've collaborated with a great amount of, you know, brilliant anesthesiologists. So what is the ideal way of testing a block? Well, I, I always slightly hesitate to give anybody um, clinical direction. Uh, I'm immediately going to encourage your listeners to read the Obstetric and uh, Association guidelines, which were published in Anesthesia last year. And we're going to put the link in the show notes, aren't we? Um, those guidelines are thorough and they're pragmatic. Light touch is recommended as the primary testing modality with the aim to block to T5 or higher. A secondary sensitivity modality is, is recommended if the level of block is at all in doubt. We recommend to test the lower limit of the block as well as the upper limit. 
and recommend straight leg lifting as a simple test for motor block. But the guidelines also really emphasize an interpersonal perspective. So communication is emphasized throughout and, and there's a huge amount of detail around that. Personally, I would want to acknowledge that everyone is going to have their own pattern. Um, things that I would want to really pick up on would be to say, well, do be careful not to use leading questions and don't rush to start because you know that the block takes a while to spread. So give it a chance, you know, like it's much more reassuring for everyone if you test once it started working. Something I, I've also learned from patients who've experienced both good and bad blocks is that from the patient perspective, a good block is really clear in testing. So for the clinician, if you have a patient who seems unsure, that can be a warning of a suboptimal block. Separately from that, I would like to emphasize the mindset that you go into this. So I think it's really important to remember why you test something. You test because you cannot be sure that something is 100% and you cannot afford to make assumptions. The safest thing is to work on the basis that the block is not adequate until you can prove that it is. And remember that it's easier to recognize failure if it's not personal. So think of it as the block, not your block. Yeah, I think that recommendation is genius because, you know, I think it's important that this is, you know, this is not personal. It's all actually about the the patient, right? That's the the ultimate goal is for the patient to have a, a great working block. So the very reason, as you mentioned, the very reason we test our blocks is because they can fail. Now, you recently published a brilliant editorial whose title addresses the very question I would like to ask, what is genu genuine failure of neuroaxial anesthesia? According to Patel and colleagues, the overall prevalence of requirements for supplemental analgesia or anesthesia in their study was 14.6%, whereas the prevalence of general anesthesia conversion was 0.06%. Hence, uh, they conclude, and I quote, significant failure of the neuroaxial technique is rare during elective surgery. Now, this is very concerning, uh, probably as a patient who experienced pain, because we are using that conversion to general anesthesia as the leading answer to address that question. But it doesn't seem to account for those patients that are actually experiencing pain. What are your thoughts about this? Of many is the answer, right? Well, so that systematic review was a huge piece of work. And they looked at 54 studies from all over the world with, I think it was 3,497 patients. So it's a huge piece of work and it is valuable. But as I explained in that editorial, I feel really strongly that some of the author's conclusions involved in big assumptions. Firstly, you know, how many women might have been more comfortable had they undergone general anesthesia? There is an assumption that the 508 women not converted to general anesthesia received satisfactory analgesia from whatever supplementary analgesia or anesthesia they received. But without patient reported outcome measures, we have no way of knowing whether that's true. Um, I also don't agree with the assertion that only conversion to general anesthesia is indicative of severe breakthrough pain. 
because that means taking a single clinician determined intervention as the measure of severe pain when pain is determined in the experience of the patient. For me, there's an issue with when people are very busy debating the research definition of what is or isn't block failure, they're, they're fundamentally potentially going to miss the point because this is all about the patient's experience and only the patient knows what they're experiencing. Yeah, that, that is, again, an excellent point that you're making. Um, in, in that very editorial, you mentioned another study by Kinsella and um, colleagues, and they define failure as either preoperative failure to achieve a satisfactory block or intraoperative failure leading to pain. In fact, Kinsella identified the rate of failure to achieve a pain-free operation as, at 6% with spinal anesthesia, 24% with epidural top-up, and 18% with combined spinal epidural. What do you think about these definition from Kinsella that doesn't really take into account the conversion to general anesthesia, but actually uses the pain as a factor to identify a failed block? Well, I think Kinsella's definition is much better. Um, it is still kind of measured by the anesthetist recognizing that the patient is in pain um, and acknowledging it and recording it. But, but even so, it is a much better definition. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and reflecting on, on your guideline and your, your editorial uh, failure of communication, um, definitely the, the leading point here is the patient and what is the patient experiencing? That should be really uh, our focus. And I think the research moving on needs to, you know, needs to be more emphatic about what is the patient experiencing and how can we decrease intraoperative pain independently of whether the case is converted to general anesthesia or not. So um, definitely the importance of testing is early recognition. What do you think is contributing to the anesthesiology is not really making the call that this is an imperfect blog? I, I think he simply appeared to be so sure that it was perfect that he couldn't really believe that it wasn't. Um, and it possibly it was easier to doubt me than it was to doubt the block. Now, I've majored in psychology, and although I was really into neuropsychology, I've always been really fascinated by human behavior. What I've learned in this case is that there are predictable behavior patterns which can have an impact in a clinical setting. And these are the so-called human factors. So, for example, there are a number of heuristics, so subconscious patterns of thought, which can lull someone into making mistakes. The three most likely in my case were confirmation bias, a fixation error, and continuation bias. So I'll just give a little bit of description on those. If we take confirmation bias, the weight of the clinician's experience will be towards successful blocks. It's natural to subconsciously look for things that confirm what you're expecting to see. Fixation error is basically saying, well, this isn't working, but I'm sure it will. I'm going to keep trying until it does. And continuation bias is, is simply saying, well, I've started to so I'll finish. Any one of those could stop someone from recognizing failure and moving to plan B. The important point is that these potential errors can be countered with active listening. 
And this brings us back around to the fact that good communication skills matter. Yeah, I, I think, again, another great point. And um, before we move on to the next part, which is when the surgery actually starts, I want to highlight quotes from one of your one of your editorials or the article that you the guidelines you help contri you contributed to. Um, and that is that we should empower the patients by telling them they are the best judge of the block and that everyone understands the importance of waiting until she is ready. So I think this is this is crucial. I think we you know the patient is again the the main um, you know the main character in the theater if we will. Um, so, so what, what happened when the operation started? Well, I, I followed it right away. The first incision felt like I was being unzipped and opening up. And I said that I could feel everything immediately. Now, if I get, if I get this right, reading your editorial failure of communication, um, you described that you felt all this pain, but it seemed like at that point, and correct me if I'm wrong, they offer you nitrous oxide for maternal anxiety, not for alleviating pain. How do you feel about being labeled as an anxious mother who just felt being unsipped and opening up? Yeah, well, I immediately felt this flash of disbelief and outrage, and, and I pushed back against that implication. I knew what I was feeling, I emphasized it, and I got the first of two doses of amphentanil. Being able to feel major abdominal surgery is every bit as horrific as it sounds. My fear was focused on my child whilst experiencing indescribable, indescribable pain, which I perceived as life-threatening. So when I hear that referred to anxiety, I actually feel a little bit sick because it's, it's such a common phrase. And it, I hear women describe being told that they're just anxious a, a lot. Now, historically, I think that this is a classic case of, of cognitive dissonance. It's far easier to blame the women than to consider that any aspect of care was lacking you know, in previous times. But this idea has persisted and it makes me really furious to hear women still being told that they're just anxious because it's gaslighting. And if an anesthesiologist doesn't believe the patient, they're not going to record or treat the pain. And while prompt management of pain can massively mitigate the experience of trauma, inadequate or delayed management effectively contributes to the distress and trauma. So my Number one thing I would want your listeners to take away is that if a woman says she's in pain, believe her. As McCaffrey wrote in 1989, pain is whatever the woman experiencing it says it is. Uh, the, the quote we had right at the beginning from the International Association of the Study of Pain was, references the unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. The key is the distress the patient is experiencing is the affective centers of the brain being activated as part of the pain response. So if someone is lying open on an operating table and she's experiencing breakthrough pain, sure, she might appear anxious. That's, that's because her brain is responding to the pain. It is not some sign of weakness on the part of the mother. 
often it's not the neuroaxial block failure, but the inadequate or delayed management that actually causes the most distress. Yeah. So again, another great point here, you know, it, it is, it is actually, you know, managing the, the, the patient, um, and not trying to minimize what the patient is telling us because, um, maternal anxiety is one thing we hear. Another thing that we hear, and I, I'm guilty as charged, um, I've used this line many times, is like, are you sure this is pain? Probably it's just pressure. Uh, pressure is very normal during during surgery. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about these? Oh, man. I, yeah, it's, it's the other phrase, isn't it? It's the one that's used all the time. Um, and it's really harmful to women who are experiencing pain because it, dismisses and diminishes their experience um i mean i you know i guess it's it's possibly reframing it as something that's more palatable to the clinician but you know seriously it's the patient's experience if they say they're in pain they're in pain you know if you have enough pressure then it's going to be painful for one thing but you know it's not for the clinician to start telling the woman what they're experiencing because if they just thought it was pressure and they they were okay with it, they wouldn't be exclaiming. They wouldn't be telling you, you know, they'd be coping. Um, so you know, again, listen to the patient. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. And now when I listen to the patient telling me that they're experiencing pain, you know, I, I would I would just go and say, hey, you know, definitely we have some medications we can try. Um, if if the pain is if the pain is it's extreme, um, or if you're un, very uncomfortable, I would suggest we have general anesthesia. So at this point, you're obviously experiencing a lot of intraoperative pain, and the, in your guidelines, you actually recommend the um, that a patient that experienced discomfort before the delivery of the baby, general anesthesia should be offered. Do you think this recommendation could have decreased the amount of trauma you endured? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, the fact that I felt the first incision meant that it was a really poor block. Two doses of intravenous alfentanil didn't touch the sides of the pain. After the second dose, I was told that I could have a general anesthetic if the pain became too much. I think that's the quote. Um, but that meant that I felt like I was somehow meant to be handling it. I was lying open on an operating table in indescribable pain, which felt life threatening to me, but by extension represented that level of threat to my child. I needed to know he was safe. So I held out for that. Like most regular people, I've not been trained to manage rational decision-making under that kind of pressure. But we do know that in the freeze fight flight response, the frontal cortex goes offline, impairing an individual's ability to think straight and to make decisions. So I would say the recommendation is right, because if someone is feeling pain early on, it is only going to get worse. That said, consent is still valid. And if someone is determined that they don't want a general, you can't give it to them. Yeah, it's it's a tough decision. Um... And and it's 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 actually very interesting because you know uh, I read it from your articles, your editorials, that you know you know the the mindset of some patients are they are willing to endure um, some physical pain so that they can actually uh, see their babies and start bonding with them. But um, you know definitely, I think 
it's important to highlight that at least we should give our recommendations to the patient and they are, you know, they, they make the decision. Now, given the amount of experience you have acquired over the years, I am sure that you are aware that for the obstetric patient, the use of general anesthesia has been associated with higher maternal morbidity and mortality. Do you think this may have played a role in your experience? It, it's possible. I, I do appreciate the history. In the past, general anesthesia was not as safe as it is now. Arguably, it's the circumstances, which often, you know, if it's not elective, it's uh, often include immense time pressure, often out of hours, less experienced clinicians. And it's these things which can make the obstetric airway feel more difficult to clinicians. The fear, sorry, the more fear that people have around general anesthesia, the more nervous they will be and the more likely it is that things will go wrong. It's really important that anesthesiologists are able to do both regional and general safely, and that they have strategies for managing difficulties in both. Patient safety often comes down to simply being prepared for failure and being able to recognize it, acknowledge it, and move to the plan B. Yeah, I agree 100% with that statement. And not surprisingly, um, there is the existence of these benchmarks regarding the use of general anesthesia. The Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology in its Center of Excellence recommends an uh, overall rate of general anesthesia for cesarean deliveries of lower than 5%, whereas the Royal College of Anesthetists recommends a rate lower than 1% for elective cesareans and less than 5% of those classified as emergent. What are your thoughts regarding these be benchmarks? I have no problem in measuring the rate of general anesthesia. But there's a saying that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And that's because targets can have unintended consequences. Now, in the UK, we've seen this with devastating results after the introduction of a target for cesarean rates. Uh, and this is a target that has subsequently been dropped by the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. But of course, uh, you know, yes, a, an organizational target should have no bearing on the individual patient in front of you. But when you have a target, which essentially incentivizes continuing with an inadequate block, there is potential that the individual might not receive appropriate care or they might get the care but then a young clinician might be given a really hard time for converting to a general anesthetic when you know say it was an emergency it was late at night over the, over the weekends and it was the only thing that they could safely do and they were the only one there and the patient was there and they were treating the patient the appropriate way for what the patient needed so i think that the targets are not helpful. The, the figures don't really relate to the research, arguably. I mean, we've, we've already been quoting figures of 6 and 14.6%. So there, there's a big gap. We don't really know what goes on in the gap. I would simply love to see these targets and the message that they send to clinicians reconsidered. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it as well. I think that, um, you know, these metrics are, are are important. I'm not saying that they're not, but they should not actually 
aim at the general anesthetic, anesthetic they should actually be more uh, guided toward the failed neuraxials. It, it is the failed neuraxials what we want to improve. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So um so let's talk about what happened afterwards eventually you you are you are put to sleep um you wake up in the PACU so what happens to you as a patient after this experience you 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 mentioned you know offline that you you were in shock after the delivery um and, and as a patient when do you think we should approach a, a patient that had a that just went through this similar experience so yes i mean i, I was absolutely in shock and i i do recall the anesthetist coming to see me the day after the operation and he kind of came into the room and he stood as far away from me as he could while still being in the room um and uttered the immortal phrase that there was no accounting for science which was an acknowledgement that it hadn't worked um, but that that wasn't then followed up in, in the writing or in my records. So my first comment would be that it is absolutely imperative that you are honest with your patient um, and that that honesty flows through into the records. I think it's incredibly important to follow up promptly. So you must have spoken to them before they've left the hospital. Patients do need to understand what happened and to know where they'll be able to access support. And it's incredibly important that the other people involved in their care are informed. You need to make sure that the notes are accurate and that a, a written explanation of what happened is shared with a mother's family doctor. Mothers should not go out into the community with no acknowledgement and no support. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's uh, amazing, um, you know, that you were not offered any support. Um, and, and I think that that's it's something that should be emphasized. Every every institution should make a, a great effort to approach these patients and say, um, you know, we do have resources. These are the resources we have available. And, you know, at least make sure that the patient understands there are resources to to help them. Another thing that you know comes up in your article in your editorial failure of communication, you mentioned something that has made me reflect because it's not infrequent that we hear the expression, "Oh well, the baby's all right," and that that is all that matter. But the, the reality is that, as you mentioned, the end doesn't justify the the means, and unfortunately. In our society, moms are expected to recover from surgery and take care of themselves, take care of baby. So what do you think we should we should change the phrase to maybe something more, um, you know, what you experienced was really hard. How can we help you take care of your newborn? Yes, that, that sounds good. I mean, the thing is that society tells us that we're, we should be grateful and of course, the baby matters, but mothers matter too, both for their own sakes and as caregivers. And we really need to look after them. So it's, it's simply not to kind of immediately tell them, well, the baby is everything that matters. You don't matter at all. Just crack on. We're not interested in you. You know, it is to recognize that they are still an individual human being who deserves care and compassion 
And if they're getting care and compassion, they're going to be a lot better placed to be the kind of mother that society expects of them. Yeah, I think we need to readdress that. And, and again, the emphasis should be on uh, providing resources and making sure that we support mom. Um, because as you said, that both the baby and mom are important. Um, another quote that has stayed with me after reading your article is one that says, both accepting responsibility and feeling at fault was very tough. A year later, this was what I kept coming back to. How could I have allowed an operation to start when I was not sure? It was unthinkable, and yet that was what I had done. I mean, unfortunately, this sounds very familiar to what victims of violence experience. They tend to blame themselves. So it seems that we need to make sure that patients um, you know, are removed of that guilt. That's probably one of the first steps that we could address and say, hey, you know, definitely what happened um, was not your fault, right? Because at least we take that guilt away or, or at least we can try. Yeah, this is a really interesting point. And I, I hadn't thought about it quite like you, you said with reference to violence until you said it, but you're, you're absolutely right. I think that letting the patient know that it's not her fault gives her both recognition and reassurance. And my guess it would be that this would make it much less likely that she'd end up turning it over and over in her head trying to process it. I think sometimes when we feel guilt, it's because we're trying to somehow see, it's, it's more comfortable for us to perceive that we had some degree of control. And so then when we're experiencing guilt, it's because we're perceiving that we had more control than we actually did. Um, I, I, it's interesting that I hear a very similar pattern of of description from people, um, you know, parents whose whose children sadly die in healthcare, and very often they they blame themselves for not being able to get their concerns heard, and there is the same element of self blame. In terms of resources, it's important to remember that someone who is well supported throughout the operation may not experience it as being traumatic. So again, you need to be careful about leading people because you need to provide the information, but avoid setting an expectation that it must have been experienced as traumatic. Because ideally the care during the operation was so great that the woman doesn't have this experience afterwards and, and you, you can get that right and you can give them the sense that they were in control at the time and that they were listened to at the time then hopefully this conversation about trauma later isn't going to be anything like as common or as big a deal um so i think probably the phrasing possibly should be more like that these are resources that some women can find useful yeah, that that is it's very useful. And and again, I, I think we just keep making reference to these. But, you know, the most important thing from from what I'm hearing is to actually make sure that we are supporting the patient. And we're talking about supporting the patient both intraoperatively and postoperatively, right? When the patient experiences uh, pain or reports pain, um, we should support the patient and tell them, OK, we can do something about it. This is what we can do. Let me know if this makes you comfortable. 
If it doesn't, we have to, you know, we're probably looking at having to do general anesthesia. Um, and then in the post-operative uh, setting, again, offering resources and supporting the patient, not letting them know, letting the patient know that she is not alone and the institution will also help with the, um, you know, with, with her care. Now we're, we're, we're getting to the end of the podcast, unfortunately, because as always, it's, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, but there is one more thing that I would like to talk about because it was really, it really moved me when we had our offline conversation. And that was the story about your older son telling you how he felt. Um, although a very personal experience, it gives us a, a different perspective, the perspective from your, your family, perhaps. So would you mind sharing with the audience um, that conversation you had with your then three-year-old? Yeah, so it was, it was actually, it was some months after, it's about six months after my second son was born. And we were, I was walking down the stairs at home with my older son, who was, what, three and a quarter. Then we're walking down the stairs, holding hands. And out of nowhere, he says to me, Mommy, you were really ill when Tristan was born, but you're okay now. And, and actually, I was still in the depths of post-traumatic stress, but actually, I'd simply got better at masking it. But of course, it made me realize, and obviously hit home with you, it must have been the most incredible shock for my older son to see such a change in me and have no way of being able to explain it. The research often cites maternal bonding with the infant, but it very ref rarely references the impact on the rest of the family. And I, and I think we really need to understand you know, mothers as linchpins of their whole families and any other children that they have looking to them and relying on them and arguably also being far, far more aware of the effects of the surgery on their mother because they can actually see it. The second point I'd quite like to pick up on this, though, is that I'd like to emphasize that when people experience trauma in healthcare, which often results in a loss of trust in healthcare, they carry that with them. And it can affect their willingness to access healthcare in the future, both for themselves and for their families. Now, I know this from a lot of other people, but I'll give my own um, example which was that I ex delayed accepting intervention for my younger son's severe gluia because I was so scared of going back into the same hospital. I needed a personal guarantee from the ENT consultant that we wouldn't see the same anesthesiologist. And, and it seemed completely rational at the time. But now it's unbelievable to think that I held off treatment which was so important developmentally. My younger son was functionally deaf from when he was born until Gromitz finally went in when he was aged 21 months. Now, thankfully, he started talking 10 days later, um, but it has had an impact in his ability to process language from writing, interestingly. Both trauma and, and the distress 
around these events can have a profound and very long lasting impact on a family and long term consequences as well. Thank you for sharing that very personal story about your son and, and the need of surgery, because again, it emphasizes that sometimes the decisions we make in the operative room can actually have long term impact. Now, I always like to end my podcast with the guest top five recommendations regarding the topic we've been discussing. So what are your top five recommendations to decrease or manage intraoperative pain? Right. Well, of course, you have to think quite hard about reducing it down to five. Um, firstly, blocks can and sometimes do fail. So when you're testing, work on the assumption that the block is not adequate until you can prove that it is. It is not personal. You are testing the block, not your block. Secondly, I would say be prepared for failure. Paraphrasing Chris Frick and Tim Cook's work on, for the Royal College Venetitis on airway management, a plan suggests a single approach. A strategy is a coordinated, logical sequence of plans. Anesthesiologists should approach with strategies rather than plans. Thirdly, ask neutral questions and let the mother know that she is the best judge of the block. She's placed extraordinary trust in you and in the surgical team. To be worthy of that trust, you must listen to her and enable her to speak up. Fourth, if she's in pain, she says she's in pain, believe her. She is the only one who knows. You may think she's safe, but believe me, if she's experiencing pain during a C-section, she may not feel safe. For the patient, feeling heard and believed is an important mitigating factor in reducing the experience of trauma. And fifth, you should be prepared to convert to a general anesthetic if you need to. And you need to be able to recommend a general anesthetic to your patient. Just finally, I think sometimes it's said about anesthesia that you've done the job right if the patient doesn't remember you. Well, I disagree. A good neuraxial block makes the anesthesiologist seem like a magician. Patients remember kindness and skill, and you simply get to choose how you are remembered. Wow. Amazing. I mean, these are great five uh, recommendations. Um, I, I want to thank you so much for the time that you have spent with us here in this podcast. I also want to thank you for sharing this very personal experience. Also want to thank you for, you know, choosing the most altruistic way of dealing with the uh, pain you experience. And personally, your guidelines, your story has definitely has made an impact on the way I see intraoperative pain. And I know that some of my colleagues as well have seen, um, have been reading some of your articles and we are looking into um, making changes into the way we communicate with our patients, the way we follow up our patients and, you know, putting a lot of effort in detecting intraoperative pain and making sure that the patient is supported throughout their whole um, hospital stay. 
I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, this was an amazing podcast. I hope listeners enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed listening to you um, in this conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, Antonio. Thank you.